Welcome to Lakeshore. Welcome those down at the Smyrna campus. We're so glad you're with us today. Those that are joining us online, we're glad you've connected with us that way as well. We are in a series called Changed. And this series is connecting this idea. As we entered into the new year, lots of people think about making changes. Uh, hopefully trying to improve their lives, trying to do better. And we all know that when we make resolutions or commitments to change, that quite often we don't stick with it over a long period of time. Or we, we lose our, uh, our way along the way and we don't keep those resolutions. Uh, but we've learned from examples in Scripture that real change happens from within. And the power for real transformation comes through our relationship with Jesus. That's where the real power is. So instead of just trying to work harder ourselves and do better, we, we need a source of strength greater than ourselves. We looked first of all at Nicodemus who had to make a transformation, a change in his life. He had been bound to legalism, just keeping the rules. And he learned that it was about more than that. It was about a real relationship with Jesus. And then last week we looked at a guy named Saul who had been a persecutor of the church. And he was transformed by the, with his encounter with Jesus to becoming... Um, a supporter, not just a supporter, but an advocate for the church. In fact, one of the greatest leaders in the history of the church. And we now know him as the Apostle Paul. And this week, we're going to look at another amazing transformation that takes place because of an encounter that a woman has with Jesus. And this tr transformation is more from immorality to a call to purity. And I just believe in our culture today... This is a message that is needed more than ever before. Uh, as you look around, the moral fiber of our society is crumbling. And, and you can rationalize it any way you want, but it's true. And you can try to give all these different reasons for it. And, and I know there are a lot of factors involved, but it really boils down to honoring God with our bodies the way God has asked us to honor Him with our bodies. And it's not easy. It never has been. It wasn't any easier in the 1950s to be morally pure, sexually pure, than it is today. And yet more people were committed to it. doesn't mean everybody was. It doesn't mean everybody did everything the way they needed to. It just means overall there was a higher moral standard in our country than there is now. And more people followed that standard. And today, standards have changed. In fact, they have almost dissolved completely. So I want us to look at this example in Scripture to see what does God really want for us? What is His plan? What is He calling us to? Not, not just the culture I'm talking about here. I'm talking about us, the church. Because the real danger here in America is it's not just the culture that has let go of the standards of God. It's the church that has let go of the standards that God has set. And the church is supposed to be setting the moral compass for all of the culture. If the church doesn't do it, there is no other source of a moral compass for the culture. It, it is what God planned for us to do as Christ followers. And so we have a high and a holy calling here that we overall are not living up to very well. And it's time for us to look again 
at God's call on our lives. Let's start with the first thing on your outline here, and that's the problem. I've already outlined the problem. It's immorality. That's the problem. And we have an example of it uh, found in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. This is an encounter with Jesus that takes place at a time where Jesus has has been out to the Mount of Olives, and then the next morning he came into the temple courts and began to teach the people. Let's pick up here with with verse 2. At dawn he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? I want to give you a little bit of the setting of what's happening here. Jesus has sat down out in the temple courts. That was a gathering place for the Jews at that time. But this was at a feast time, which means that there were more people in Jerusalem than usual. Uh, At the major feast times in Jerusalem, the city would be packed with people. Much like uh, when we have a lot of things going on downtown in Nashville all at one time. Uh, It's wall-to-wall people. And because there were not enough places for people to stay when they had these major feasts, people would be camped out, many of them in tents, all around the city of Jerusalem. So you have crowds of people, you've got people inside the city walls, outside the city walls, all camping out, all there for this feast. And what happens in settings like that is that it's ripe for sinful activity. Now you may say, uh, I don't get the connection. Well, the connection is still true today. Statistics show us that we've got a Super Bowl coming up, right? At the city where the Super Bowl happens... Thousands of people come to that city. And you know what people do in response to that? They provide more sinful opportunities for those crowds that are coming in. Prostitution is always higher. Sex trafficking always higher. Around big events like that. Now, we don't have exact numbers. There's no way to get exact numbers. But we know from the records of arrest and things like that, that that kind of crime goes up dramatically around big events like that. It happens here in Nashville, too, when we have big conventions and big events here. So here you've got that same setting in Jerusalem. And you've got more of that kind of thing going on all around the city. It probably would not have been hard for these religious leaders to catch somebody committing adultery. Uh, They probably had a tip and burst, according to the way it's worded here, they burst right in on them and caught them in the very act, it says. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Can you imagine the embarrassment that she felt when they walked in on her and this guy committing adultery? But she brought it on herself. We all know that. She made the choice. That's the way it's worded here, that she was the one who willingly participated. This is not some forced act on her. This is something she willingly participated in. And in our culture, people would be tempted to say, well, two consenting adults, no big deal. In that culture, there were people who had that attitude, but there were also these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, 
who enforced the law and who were very strict about the law, at least as far as it was in their eyes making other people follow it. And so they took this woman, dragged her probably half naked in front of this crowd of people and made her stand up in front of everybody and asked Jesus these questions about this morality problem. We know that their motives were not pure. The scripture gives us that insight. Uh, One way we know that is if they really wanted to follow the law, guess what they should have done? Brought both parties to stand before Jesus. You see, the law condemned the man and the woman. The law said the man could be stoned because of adultery as well as the woman because of adultery. They didn't even bother getting the guy. Adultery is one of those things, it takes two. But only one is brought before Jesus. You see, their motive wasn't pure. They're not even so much worried about enforcing the law here. We're given the insight that they're wanting to trick, trick, trick or trap Jesus into saying or doing something that they could use against him. So, so we know there is... There is this attempt to trip up Jesus. I think more than anything in our culture today, the, those who get angry at the church and those who rebel against the church and those who are fighting against Christianity in our culture, it comes down to this kind of thing. Who are you to tell us how to live our lives? Who are you to judge the choices that we make? Isn't that what most people criticize the church for? You got no right to put your standards on anybody else. You don't even do well yourself with those. Is there some truth to that? Yeah, absolutely. Because even in the church, we're not keeping those standards very well. They're supposed to bring both parties. And they were supposed to try to handle this in a way that would be pleasing to God, but these religious leaders aren't worried about that. They're just wanting to tear down Jesus. Much like our culture today, more than seeking truth, is trying to tear down Christ and the church. You see, the truth is, Jesus has set standards. The Scripture does set standards that are different than the world's standards. But the truth about that is, He does it out of love. Because he knows that these standards, if followed, will bless us. Will will give us better lives. Will protect us from things that would harm us. You say, well, well, no, I I just don't believe that. The Bible's old-fashioned. It's just so out of touch. It's so out of date. Well, let me give you a little insight into what's happening in our culture today in America. Sexually transmitted diseases are more rapidly spreading today than ever since they've been measured in our history. I mean by far. Just in the last four years, the statistics show us from the CDC that they are spreading now to epidemic proportions. Now, the CDC can't give us moral answers to that. They're not supposed to. That's not their role. 
The CDC has always said, well, there are contributing factors to this, such like poverty and, and uh, uh, access to protection and all of those factors that they say contribute to this. Here's the problem. In four years, those things haven't changed. In ten years, those things haven't changed. The poverty rate is actually a little lower than it was ten years ago in America. There's more access now to protection than there has ever been before. And yet the disease is still spreading at epidemic proportions. What has changed? The moral standards of our culture. Listen to the CDC's report that they gave this year. This in 2018. Nearly 2.3 million cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis were diagnosed in the United States in 2017, according to preliminary data released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention at the National STD Prevention Conference in Washington, D.C. This surpassed the previous record, which was set in 2016, by more than 200,000 cases, and it marked the fourth consecutive year of sharp increases in these sexually transmitted diseases. STDs. And what do we see on TV? They joke about STDs. Chlamydia increased 22% in just four years. Cases of gonorrhea increased 67% in just four years. Primary and secondary syphilis increased 76% in just four years. Congenital syphilis increased 154% in just four years. Here's another danger with that. The traditional treatments are becoming less and less effective. They're becoming more and more resistant to antibiotics that we treat these with today. And the long-term health consequences can be devastating. Why do you think Jesus put these protections there? Why do you think God put these boundaries on sexual activity in our lives just to keep us from fun even science teaches clearly that if we followed the standards that God has set we would have a healthier society by far than what we have now and that doesn't even take into account the emotional consequences of this kind of lifestyle where sex is now being treated as a casual recreational activity. And the hookup culture is predominant among our young people today. Friends, that takes more of an emotional toll on our young people than any study could possibly measure. Let's stop thinking that the world knows better than God. Our Creator knows best how we were designed to function and work and how to protect us and how to bless us. And the world obviously doesn't have a clue or these stats would be different, drastically different. That doesn't take into account the number of abortions that have increased. You know what the leading cause of death in the world is today? Abortion. Because we're using it as a form of birth control. It's all a result of shifting our moral standards. That's all it is. Or not even having any moral standards. 
like it just doesn't matter what anybody does. Now, friends, I'm not like a lot of pastors. I'm not going to tell you it's all good. I'm not trying to be the cool hip pastor that says, I'm not going to make you feel bad if you come to our church. I passed that a long time ago. I'm way too old to be cool and hip. But I think people need to hear the truth. And our politicians and our health care agencies aren't willing to tell us the truth about this stuff. I'm talking about all parties, all politicians. And in fact, it's not really even their job. The voice is supposed to be teaching these things as the church. And even among our churches, this is not being dealt with honestly and openly the way it needs to be. Well, that's going to be different at Lakeshore. You're going to hear the truth about these things. Because it's ravaging people's lives when we get outside these boundaries that God has set for us. And it's destroying families because we get outside these boundaries that God has set for us. And it's hurting our children more than we could ever imagine when we get outside these boundaries that God has set for us. You know, there's actually a growing movement in our country and in some other parts of the world to make it legal to have sex with children with minors. I mean, if you're going to get rid of standards, why have that one? Right? It reminds me of a letter someone wrote. Some of you can remember there used to be this column that Ann Landers did where people would write in for advice and she would answer them in the newspaper. You know, she would pick ones to answer there. There was this guy who wrote to Ann Landers that said, Dear Ann, I love my wife. She's a great lady. But I've, I've gotten involved with another woman too. And it's, it's gone pretty far. And, and I just feel like I'm really confused now because I love both of these women. I need your advice. What should I do? And he said, P.S., please don't give me any of that morality stuff. I love what Ann Landers said. She said, Dear Confused, one of the only differences between animals and humans is morality. I suggest you call your local veterinarian. See, God created us to be higher than the animals, to be over the animals, not to act like the animals. And he called the church to be the ones who set the pace for the culture. And sex for our culture has been reduced to nothing more than this casual recreational act. And people, to defend their action, will say, it's my body to do with what I want. That's the cry of those who want to promote abortion. That's the cry of those who want to promote sexual activity and uh, sex between same sex and all. It's always their cry. It's my body. It's my choice. The problem is the scripture doesn't support that for Christ followers. For Christ followers, it says this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, that you receive from God? This is pretty clear. Listen to this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God 
with your bodies. It is not your body to choose to do with whatever you want. By the way, if abortionists want to use that argument, then what about the other body? Are they getting any choice in that? Because there's another body growing inside that woman. It's a human body, by the way. That's why the parts are so valuable for them to sell. It's time for us to start acting like it's our body to do with what we want. It's not. Not if we have been surrendered to Christ. We've accepted the payment that he made for us on the cross. He has brought us back into his family. So now the standards of the family are supposed to be our standards. The morality that he says is the morality for his family is the morality we're supposed to have. Because we are his family. And so we need to understand Jesus not only had the standard of these Pharisees that that adultery was wrong. Jesus actually raised the standard. Did you know that? He actually raised the standard higher than the Pharisees had it. Uh, In Matthew 5. Verse 27 and 28, he's teaching there. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? This is the greatest body of teaching we have from Jesus in Scripture. And in Matthew 7, beginning with verse 27, here's what he said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, where did they hear that? From God in the Ten Commandments, right? So is that the truth, that they've heard that from God? Yes. You shall not commit adultery. That's God's standard. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So anybody sitting in here that thought you could say, I haven't done that one, better think again. Now, women can lust too, so it applies to both sexes. Have you ever lusted at all? Jesus says the standard is that's adultery. That's adultery. So, Understanding that for Christ followers, God has said, it's not your body, it's mine. I get to set the standards here. Then then in light of what this woman has done, what is the response? That's the next thing I want us to look at today, the response. We've seen the problem. She's been immoral. She's committed adultery. So did somebody else who didn't get brought there, but, but she's the one they're dealing with. Okay. What is the response? Look at verse, in chapter 8, verse 3. There is... Oftentimes, if you've seen movies about the life of Jesus and you've seen this maybe acted out in uh, performances, this account with the woman in adultery, almost always they show the woman uh, face down to the ground in the sand in front of Jesus. That's not what happened here. She's not covering up and hiding herself. She can't. Look at verse 3 again. They brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her do what? Stand before the group. She's not down on the ground, covering herself up, hiding. They made her stand there in front of everybody. This woman caught in adultery. Their response of these Pharisees is, we want to make an example out of her and the way Jesus handles this situation. That's what their intent is. You see, when people do things that God says is immoral, society has different responses to it. Sometimes it's like the Pharisees. It's judgment, strict judgment. You messed up, you're condemned, that's it. you got to be punished and there's no other option. That's their response to immorality. 
But others in society do a different response. There may be apathy is their response. Remember, two considering adults, none of my business. I'm just going to go on with my life. You choose what you want to do. Apathy is the response of a lot of people in society. But then there's a step beyond apathy, and that is acceptance. You just join in with it. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's living that way. Well, today, everybody uh, hooks up. Today, everybody lives together before they get married. Today, uh, uh, everybody uh, is open to same-sex relationships. Today, it's all acceptable. So why not just be part of that, too? So that's another response to this. And none of those are God's response. None of those were Jesus' response. We have a record of his response. Let's look at what he did. Verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I love this about Jesus. They wanted, you know how people know how to push your buttons? You know, you got, don't punch the guy next to you. You know there are people in your life that just know how to push your buttons. They know how to get under your skin. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to push his button. They're trying to get him to, to lose his composure and say something or do something that they can use against him. And, and Jesus just won't won't give in. He won't take their bait. I love his first response. He doesn't say anything at first. What does he do? He just bends down and starts writing with his finger in the sand. Every time I think about that, I think about us kids playing football in the backyard when I was a kid. You know why? Because I would almost always play quarterback. And you know how we would do the plays? We would throw on the sand. You, you go here, here. You, you go here and there. And then I will throw, you go straight down, I'm going to throw it there. We would throw it all out in the sand, right? Then we would mark that one out and get to the next play, you know, after that one was over. There have been a lot of people try to guess what Jesus was drawing in the sand. We don't know. If any scholar tries to tell you, I know what he drew in the sand. He was writing the Ten Commandments. He doesn't know. Don't, don't buy into that. Nobody knows what Jesus was drawing in the sand. I just like the fact that he's doing it. I think it's really cool. He's not going to have a knee-jerk reaction here. He's not going to take their bait. He's not going to jump in there and do something that they could use against him. He's just taking his time. It says in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, see, they wouldn't leave him alone. Here he is just riding in the sand, and they're saying, Jesus, what, what will you say? You know what the law says. They're just badgering him, okay? They kept on questioning him, and then he straightened up and said to them, not what they were expecting. Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then what did he do? Start pointing out their sins? No, he just got back down, writing in the sand again. Jesus was so cool. <laughs> I wish I was half as cool as Jesus. He's so cool. Writing in the sand. Because he knew, he knew these religious leaders were strict enough about the law that they all knew they had committed some sin along the way. And now it's in their court, right? They're trying to get Jesus to mess up. But here's their dilemma now. Any one of them who picked up a stone now would be saying what about themselves? I've never committed any sin in my life. Could any of them do that? The only person there that day that had a right to throw a stone was the one riding in the sand. Right? He had no sin in him at all. And he's riding in the sand. He's not throwing any stones. 
says in verse 9 at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. I bet they're mumbling and grumbling under their breath as they walk away. Who's this guy think he is? You know, making us look bad in front of everybody. The older ones first. I like that. As I get into that category, it means we're wiser than you young guys. <laughs> we got a little life experience here. We know he's got us and we're just going to walk away. We're not gonna, and when the younger ones saw them walking away, they thought, well, man, if they have to walk away, you know, I better too, right? Because I know if they, they can't stand here and throw rocks, I can't either. All right. Until only Jesus was left, it says, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up. Remember, now they're looking at each other face to face. And he asked her, woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I guarantee you she's been checking. She's been watching. She's been looking around to see if anybody was left standing up there to throw a rock at her. You see, stoning was real. They really did that. Not just occasionally. They did it on a fairly regular basis. They stoned people to death. So she knew that could happen to her. And legally, she had no defense because she was caught in the act. But she saw that everybody had left. And then Jesus says these words, Neither do I condemn you. Now, the problem with our culture is, is they stop the story right there. And they use this to say, you've got no right to tell me how to live my life. And, and the Bible is old and ancient, and there's no way I need to come under its authority. And, 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 and the standards are just too old-fashioned for, for our culture and our lives today. We just, we're so much more advanced, and we're so much more intelligent than the people back then. Yeah, that's why we've got those statistics I read earlier, right? Because we're so advanced. See, Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus made it clear, I did not come to condemn the world, but to do what? Save the world. So here's what he told her. Go now and leave your life of sin. What we have to understand that is in the original language, that is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not just casual conversation. He's commanding her, go change your life. Don't keep living the way you've been living. We have a word for that in Scripture. You know what it is? Repent. Turn your life around. And of all the churches in America today crying out about the wonderful grace of Jesus, which is wonderful... Very few are using the word repent anymore. Very few are calling people to leave their life of sin. We just want you to come to church and be welcome. We just want you to give your offerings and help us with our attendance counts so we can report what a great big church we've got. And we don't want to make anybody mad or make them quit coming, so we're not actually going to call them to repentance from sin. But if the church doesn't do it, and the church is supposed to be the family of God representing God himself, where should this message be coming from? The church. We should be the people calling for repentance. Not by our authority. You say, well, we got no right because we've all messed up too. We're not doing it by our authority. We're doing it by his you're right by my authority. I've got no right to call somebody to repentance. I need to repent too. 
Of course I do. Especially with the standard Jesus set, where it's even thoughts now, right? All of us need to repent. All of us. But that doesn't mean we can't call others to repent by the authority of Jesus Christ, by His teaching, by His standards. So let's close today with the lessons that I believe we should get from this story. The first lesson is we need to guard our thoughts since Jesus raised the standard, right? If the church is going to be different, if we're going to have higher standards than the world, we've got to do a better job of guarding our thoughts because our actions always originate where? With our thoughts, always. So if you do some act of immorality, you've thought about it. It started there. And, and the thought is not the sin. Understand, lust is not just looking at someone and saying they are attractive. That's not the same as what this word lust means. Lust means you don't just stop and say they're attractive. You begin to think beyond that about actions to be taken. You see, the thought is the beginning of what can become the sin, the immorality. So if we want to keep it from getting to the immorality, we've got to start guarding our thoughts. I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it what? Obedient to Christ. What are we supposed to be doing? Obeying Christ. Where does that begin? By taking our thoughts captive to Christ. Making them obedient to Christ. Will you have some thoughts that are outside of Christ's will for your life? Yes. What are you supposed to do with those thoughts? Take them captive and then do what with them? Make them obedient to Christ. But what we tend to do is rationalize why it's okay for us to do that. We say, yeah, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but you don't understand how miserable I am in my marriage. And you don't understand, it would be economically better for us to live together even though we're not married. And, and we just think, you know, if we live together for a while, we'll be able to find out if we're suited for each other before we get married. Sounds like worldly logic, doesn't it? You know what the statistics show? People who live together before they get married have twice the divorce rate of people who don't live together before they get married. Wow. But the world says it's supposed to work this way. But God says that's not the way I designed it to work. In the Bible, consistently from Genesis all the way through, Jesus answering questions about marriage. Here's what Jesus said. God created them male and female, first of all. So marriage is between a man and a woman. And for that reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. This is the order. And then the two become one flesh. That's the order God set. Guess which order works best? The order God set. There's value to it. There's a reason for it beyond God just wanting to restrict you in some way. You see, God is wiser than the people of the world. It's time we give Him credit for that. So we've got to guard our thoughts. And then the next step is when we understand, we get our thoughts right, then we can flee immorality. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, listen to this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know, remember, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So flee immorality. You do that 
when you do that, you honor God with your body. That's how you honor God. When you flee immorality. By the word, that word flee is an interesting word in the original language. You know what it means? Flee. I'm getting deep here. I know. Here we go. Are you with me? You know what it means to flee? Get away from it. Period. Don't entertain it. Don't rationalize it. Don't spend time thinking about how you could work this out without any bad consequences. Get away from it. Period. I love the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You remember Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and he was taken into Potiphar's household and he worked his way up in Potiphar's household to be the number one man in charge in the household and he was taking care of things but Potiphar's wife was not holding to the moral standards of God and she looked at Joseph and if you want to use the word lust, that's what she did. She lusted after him and she tried to convince him to have sex with her over and over again. And and on one occasion in Genesis 39, it says, beginning with verse 9, Joseph responds to that. He says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? God. You see, Joseph invoked two things. I have the trust of my master. I don't want to break that. But there's something higher and holier than that at work here. If I do this thing, it won't just be sinning against Potiphar. It will be sinning against who? God. You see, you step out of God's boundaries with immoral sexual behavior. You're not just sinning against the people in your life. You're sinning against God himself. Against God himself. Who had to pay for that sin with the blood of his son Jesus. That's why it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Joseph could have rationalized everything. I think about his life a lot. He'd been treated unfairly. He'd been sold into slavery. He had, he had been falsely accused. All of these things that happened to him. He could have said, well, I deserve this. She's a consenting adult. It should be okay. She wants this, right? She could have rational, he could have rationalized the whole thing. But instead... He decided to flee. And when he ran out of the room, she grabbed his coat and used it against him later. He was falsely accused and had to go to prison for it. But he had a higher moral standard that he wasn't going to break. That's what God is calling us to be like in our lives today. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, it says this. Test everything. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. So the next step we need to take, the lesson we need to learn, is we all need to repent, every one of us. We all need to seek the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. The good news is, he, when we repent, He is faithful to forgive us of all of our sins. But repentance is not just being sorry for what we did. See, we confuse that in our culture today. Repentance is more than just being sorry. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, you could be sorry and die in your sin because you were sorry, but you went on back and kept doing that kind of stuff. That's not repentance. Repentance is doing what Jesus told this woman to do. Go and leave your life of sin. That's repentance. Not just being sorry that you got caught or that you hurt somebody, or that you hurt yourself. 
or that you now have this disease that we're having trouble curing anymore. It's actually changing your lifestyle. I want to close with some instructions in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 9. Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, as your pastor, I want to say this. Do not be deceived. Listen to this. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor men who have sex with men. And that's the Greek word for homosexual sex. It could involve women too. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is, I love this word. Listen, that is what some of you, what's that word? Were. Doesn't have to stay that way. It can change. It can change for anyone who wants it to change. Here's what he says. But you were washed. Baptism. You were sanctified, set apart for God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of means by the authority of. He's the one who justifies. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. When you're buried with Him at baptism, you rise up and He gives you His Spirit as a gift to you. Everything can change. We don't have to be held in prison by our sin and our immorality. But we have to be willing to repent. The Bible says apart from repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've made it clear that you do have standards. Those standards are important. They're not there to restrict us. They're there to allow us to freely enjoy life as you created our lives to be. Help us to understand how much you love us. And that it is that love that puts those boundaries there. Just like we put boundaries around our kids because we love them. And Father, we all know we have not kept those boundaries intact in our lives. And so we ask for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Father, there may be a time where some people today, they actually need to take that step of repentance. I know we all, we all do. Help us to be willing to repent and confess, to seek your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And Father, we thank you for your promise that when we do that, you freely forgive us. And you make a way for us to have life abundant and eternal. And for somebody here today who needs to take that step, Father, we pray that this would be the day they come into your grace and they turn from their sins and they begin to honor you in every way with their lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If we stand and sing, we invite you to come.